Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month we welcome three guests from the Poor People's Campaign, y'all. Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris is the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and the director of the Cairo Center. Ms. Callie Greer is an anti-poverty activist and chef whose food I got the amazing joy to partake of down in Selma, whose daughter died in her arms due to lack of access to health care. And finally, Yara Allen is co-director of Theo Musicology and Movement Arts for the Poor People's Campaign. I've asked these three powerful women to come talk with us on Freedom Road about the poverty, power, and change movement right now. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. Okay, so I looked forward to the meals offered after lunch. This was back in the middle of 2008. 2008, in 2009, when the crash happened, and we had a severe economic downturn in the United States of America. And I stood in line feeling like I was holding a secret. I was the executive director of an anti-poverty faith-rooted organization, and it was the height of that downturn, and I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from, literally. So I figured out very, very quickly how to stretch $5 over the course of a day or even several days. Pizza became my best friend. One night, I didn't know where dinner was going to come from because I'd completely run out of my money for the week. So I called my sister and she was also in a scarce mode, right? Everybody was pretty scarce back then, but she also was. And she lived downtown and I asked, hey, can I come have dinner with you? And she said, sure, come on. So I hopped on the A train and I rode to her place downtown and she only had one salmon that she cut five ways. Everybody got one sprig of broccoli and she had one potato that she cut five ways. And it was the most delicious meal I've ever had. And on the way back uptown, I looked around at the other northbound riders and I thought to myself, what about all the people who have no safety net at all? Dr. King died in the middle of organizing the Poor People's Campaign in 1968. Reverend Dr. Barber and Reverend Dr. Theo Harris picked it up again several decades later and said, now is the time. Thus was born the Modern Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. So women, I'd like to begin just by asking you to share with us, how has your story intersected with the experience of poverty itself? 
And you can go just according to who wants to speak first. I'm actually, can I say, I'm actually tempted and I won't be tempted. I'll just go ahead and do it. <laughs> I want to call on our elder first. Callie, would you share with us your story? Yeah, my life story or my life story is not so much intersected with the experience of poverty. For me, it's different. But how I experience poverty because I'm, I'm living in poverty. And because to me, I've been in, living in poverty most of my life. And it's not an experience or at a crossroad in my life that I've experienced poverty. It's life. It's me making choices that directly affect my family all day in the, in the life of my family members. It's a way of life. So it doesn't, it doesn't intersect. It's like, it's like woven or parallel lines. I mean, you, it, it, every step you make, you'll make it in poverty. Every decision you make, you make it in, in lack. And having to make decisions about very important things in your life. Uh, and, you know, even when things are caught up for a minute, you feel like you're okay for a minute. I can't really rest because, you know, it's only for a minute. So I'm always thinking ahead, trying to plan what's next or uh, what bill is due, what prescription got to be filled, if there's car repair, and so on. So the okay feeling doesn't last. So it's not intersected to me. It's, it's more of a shadow or my shadow that when I was writing some stuff down, you know, the shadow of my hand was on the paper was always with me. Oh. <laughs> so, um, so in making decisions in that, in that spirit of scarcity, mm-hmm. when I look around me at the abundance, that others have, it's just a, a, an oppressing, depressing feeling. Um, and, you know, as a black woman and the way I grew up, and mm-hmm. that's just being an elder, depression and oppression is not something we talk about in our community. Yeah. We just ain't got time to be depressed. We ain't got time to be oppressed, <laughs> even though we are. <laughs> we got time for any of that stuff. You know, uh-huh. we don't have time to think about that. Uh, an hour on, on somebody's couch. If we get an hour on somebody's couch, we're taking a nap. <laughs> you know, we're trying to talk. I love that. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I feel that. Yeah. I understand. We, I get it. Yeah, wow. we, we try to take a nap from life. So we don't have the, the blessing, I guess, or the gift of uh, pursuing pursuit of happiness and all of that mm. stuff. We're worrying about our life is my life our life and poverty is limited. That's deep. Can I just say real real quickly, Callie, can yeah. I just say that's completely and utterly deep what you just said. We don't have yeah. the privilege of pursuing happiness. Wow. No how? How you find uh. you know we find, we have found ways to bring some kind of happiness or joy into our lives because we have to. Sure. We have to. Yes. We have children, we have grandchildren, we have to. We cannot just be, we, women, for me, the women set the tone of the house mm. and of the home mm. and how we live. And, you know, mm-hmm. if mama ain't happy, nobody happy, it's true. Yes. Um, it's, mm. So, so whatever we cook, we have to cook it with joy and happiness and saying, Lord, at least we got this to eat. At least we can eat. Whatever it is we're eating. So we don't have that 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 joy of clean water, <laughs> clean food. Wow. What is clean food? <laughs> you know, wow. growing up, we, we had food and all of it was clean to us. But, <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. adequate education, a place to be educated that's adequate. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Mm-hmm. A place to live that's adequate with, with running water and, and just not everywhere. You know, it's like we live in, mm-hmm. we live in, in a garbage dump, mm-hmm. you know, and everything from literally the garbage and the other trash of the world is just dumped on us. And we become the problem when it's not true. Yeah. Um, poor folks work, work harder than anybody in, in the United States. It's poor really folks true. work harder than anybody. It is true. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we become essential. But, mm-hmm. but only in the work, not in the living wage, not in the essential mm-hmm. adequate housing, mm-hmm. adequate transportation, adequate mm-hmm. education, mm-hmm. Um, adequate health care. We're only essential to keep the world, the United States and the world working. That's mm-hmm. what we're essential. But our essential needs to be able to do that in a healthy way is not essential. So I reject this essential workers thing. I reject yes. that. Yes, yes, me too. I do, because you're forcing people to work, to eat in mm-hmm. a deadly situation. Mm. So how am I essential to you? I'm more of a disposable to you. Mm. Because if one of us are, 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 are this sick and cake up, you hire somebody else. Mm-hmm. We're replaceable, we're disposable, we are not valued. So this, this notion of essential worker, mm. <laughs> uh, when you're mm-hmm. something is essential, you take care of that essentialness. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. My grandmother, I asked my grandmother one time, um, when, you know, when you're little, you just, you find stuff out and you ask grandma, what was it like for you? Right. So I found out about the great depression and you know, she was from mm-hmm. South Carolina and lived on the same plantation that I, I believe my third great grandmother slaved on, but then somehow got that land. I don't know how she got the land, but she did. Uh-huh. And so, but my, my grandmother was responsible for going out and picking, like, like picking the cotton and like for her keep. And, and I asked her, I didn't know all of that. And, and when I found out about the depression, I was probably about eight years old or so. And, and I said, grandma, what was it like for you? And she literally looked at me like I was an alien. And she said, depressed. We weren't depressed. We were always depressed. <laughs> we didn't, yeah, we didn't have a depression. We were always depressed. Always. Like, wow. mm-hmm. You know, when doing depression times for, for people, for, for us, when, we're, when you're poor, everything goes down in cost. Everything is, is in reach. If you got a few pennies mm-hmm. saved up, you can actually buy some stuff that you couldn't buy before. Wow. So, so, yeah. I, I don't know, for me, it was like when we, when there was some depression, I'm like, hey, you know, if this should have called for that thing, I can actually buy that. <laughs> you know, in the grocery store. You know, wow. so, so, so there was a, to me, when things like that happen, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I, I believe in God. He's, he, and, and, and he's my rock. Uh, mm. brought me through two children. I'm, I think I'm still playing. I don't know. Um, it, depression has a way of bringing folks down to your level. Yeah. Ooh, that's uh, so deep. I mean, it really does. It oh. gives people a, a bird's eye view of how, how you've been living all the time. See, it's yes. not new to us to be in the food line. It's not new, new to us to be in the food line. Uh-huh. I was at a food line a couple of weeks ago. Folks were in these brand new cars and stuff like that, trying to get a bag of that food, a box of mm. that food. It mm. brings people down to that level where they actually get to experience it for a little while. It's actually really true. You know yeah, I can speak to it's that true. as well. Absolutely. I want to hear, what about you, Liz? What's, what's your intersection, your experience? Because I heard you during your speech at the gathering, the mass gathering, and you said that you have the experience of poverty in your own life as well. So can you share that with us? 
Sure. Um, and, and thanks for having this conversation. And thanks, Callie, for that powerful image of poverty not being an intersection with your life, but a shadow. I think that's that's amazing. So I, I was raised the granddaughter of immigrants. Uh, my mom's family came to this country uh, fleeing the Armenian genocide. My father's fleeing poverty in the hills and mountains of Greece. Mm. Both families looking for the American dream and instead finding an American nightmare of poverty and inequality. And so my growing up, many of the people in my immediate family were experiencing, you know, deep deprivation. Family struggled ourselves. And then when I kind of grew up and was on my own, I mean, I started working, you know, when I was a a very young teenager, so I could Mm -hmm. um, be able to help out. And when I was on my own, I uh, I surely fell into, you know, years and years without any health care insurance. Most of my life, I've worked low-wage jobs, and Mm -hmm. um, I have been personally homeless, staying at friends' Mm -hmm. houses, you know, -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. again, finding those couches to crash on for an hour, as Callie described. You know, I think that I was able to be politically raised by poor and homeless families that were organizing. And so when Mm. I fell into the deepest poverty that I experienced, I was never alone for it. Mm. I was a part of a movement that Mm. was being led by folks that, you know, Mm -hmm. didn't have anywhere to go home to after a meeting was done and had never known anything other than the Great Depression that Mm -hmm. that exists for, you know, about half of of U.S. families um, Mm -hmm. as we speak. And so I surely have experienced poverty firsthand, but also have my whole heart and soul and body break every time I meet someone else who Mm -hmm. has gone through not having healthcare, not having, you know, what it is to be, live essential lives and having to struggle especially in a nation at a time when we throw out more food, have mm. more luxury abandoned housing units, mm. and the profits of the, the wealthy are, are untold. Wow, thank you so much. And, and how about you, Yara? Yeah, so like, um, you know, like Callie, I too can't pick a particular place where poverty intersected. It was just what it was. But mm-hmm. but I want to start by saying, I guess start with a cliche. I grew up poor and didn't know it. You know, we hear yeah. that now. That's I right. I grew up poor and I didn't know it. We had, you know, food and shelter and clothes and some of the things we wanted. But at the time, we didn't realize the struggle that it took to support six mm. children. We didn't yes. know what my mother and father actually had to go to. We knew that daddy worked two jobs. We knew that mom would come home from the tobacco factory with, and, and it was my joy every day to go in her pockets and sift through the, what I called then tobacco crumbs and find the oatmeal cake that she didn't eat for lunch. And, oh. and she would always either save some of it for me or bring one for me. Um, wow. I was the youngest of six, so that was my perk. But I remember being four years old and watching my father get into his Impala crying. I had never seen my father cry. Oh, um, my. Daddy, even today he's deceased, but he is still my dragon slayer. Yeah. And I remember the family standing at the door, my mother crying, 
a father getting into the car. And I thought maybe he was going away and coming right back. I had a rough time with it. The older siblings, you know, understood what was happening. And I later came to understand that the work that he did here at the cotton mill wasn't enough to help support his family. And daddy was a proud man, like many black men who were there with their families and who were, you know, struggling to try try to keep it all afloat. And so he left and went to Washington, D.C. And he became a foreman at the, uh, over a, a maintenance, or with the maintenance crew at Prince George's Community College. That came, that job came later on, but when he arrived there, um, he worked with, you know, tobacco companies and he did what he could do because they were, of course, paying more there than they were here. And he would send money home and commute back and forth. And in the meantime, you know, mom's working as a domestic worker and um, in tobacco factories. And we just didn't know because that was the situation with so many of us in the community. And now looking back, I saw that the way we survived was that we bartered. Um, You know, if the man up the street took six cars, then my mother didn't have to worry about taking her car in or my brother learned to, to fix cars. The lady across the street made soap. There was another woman who had an apple tree and we just shared. Um, if somebody got more eggs than we could use in a week, we shared. I'll always mm-hmm. remember the phrase, knock, knock, coming in. Oh my and, God. Yeah, wow. knock, knock, coming in. We would, where neighbors would knock on the door and we could leave our doors open and it was, you know, coming in and they would always come in with something. And so we, we kind of helped to take care of each other. And, and so looking back, the other thing is this. So, and, and I don't know that it's unique to the black community or if it's among people in poverty that you didn't always go out and talk about what was going on in your house. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of people never went out and said, we're poor. That was just yeah. something that you didn't say. We didn't hear mm-hmm. the adults say it. Mm-hmm. There was, I'm kind of jumping around because the memories are presenting themselves at random. That's okay. But there, there was a man in the neighborhood, Mr. David Lane. He was the only white man in the community. Of course, he didn't live in the community, but he, he had the store there. Mm-hmm. And he would give us food and, and other items on credit. And mm-hmm. yep. He got to know our families. You know, we'd come in and and he'd ask how the parents are doing. You know, we'd say, Mama needs sugar, flour, bread. And he'd write it down and he said, You know, tell your mom hello. And mom and dad would go at a later time and pay, you know, pay the bill. Uh And so these were some of the memories. And as I got older and I'm looking back, going, we had fun chopping wood and putting it in in the stove. Uh-huh. And for us, that was fun. For mom and dad, that was struggle. And so those memories, like not having health or dental insurance, and at the school that I attended, the elementary school, they had people to come in and check our teeth. And mm-hmm. I remember that the black kids, I don't know if, if it was true across the board, mm-hmm. but we didn't receive any kind of painkiller. Uh-huh. Um, where we had a tooth filled, and oh you could hear 
you could hear the screams for the oh. kids waiting in the hall. You could hear the screams oh. coming out of the office. And I was one of those kids. Oh. Um, yeah. So, but, but wow. it was because, you know, there was, we didn't have the insurance that people of means had. That's and right. So this is, this is what we had to do. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. We're living in the kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're gonna share what God poured into the world through us. Your one year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. you guys. Okay. I want to jump back in. First of all, Yara, and I heard Callie in the background saying, yeah, you you have those memories as well, right? Like, it's funny because, you know, as, as a child, we don't really understand the situation we're in, right? We do just think of this. This is just life. This is just, this is how life is. It's how my, all my Mm -hmm. friends, I mean, your entire barometer for existence is just you and your friends. So how do your friends live? How do you live? Pretty much mostly going to be pretty much the same. So this is life. It strikes me that that's part of the reason. Well, no, honestly, I'm, I'm almost at a loss for words, actually, because what you're describing, especially that dentist scene just got me, is all the way down to the experience of the dentist is so different. And it's Mm -hmm. different because black bodies are not valued. Poor bodies are not valued. Yeah, we are are what they used to experiment on. How much pain can a person take? And this and never, you know. um, Oh, my God. It's it's amazing to me. I wish, I know you and I and other black women from other areas, because I I identified this to what you were saying to the South and actually a lot of your what you said was answers to my second question. Mm-hmm. Um, what? When did you first understand that I was poor? A lot of your answers were, or the answers that I have written down, so I that wouldn't ramble and go on and on, kind of <laughs> keep on track. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was, it was, a, it was, it was identifying the South. You know, being in the South all my life, and this is what we were accustomed to. So this mm-hmm. is what happened, and we, you know, right. this is what. I went, but mm-hmm. to hear you say that in another region, you know, I'm saying that, that that we're black women 
are not having these conversations. So I tend to think that you had it better. You see what I'm saying? You blew me away. And this is just like, oh my gosh, she's mirroring my life. Yeah. And you wasn't sure about watching these kids. So I'm like, what the what? You know, yeah. and so so mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not um isolated. A lot of most of it is not isolated in the South. No, that's um, right. It's, it's isolated in our culture and it's isolated mm-hmm. to us. So I, that's why I was saying, What? Yeah, uh huh. And mm-hmm. um talking about the bothering. I mean all of that is a part of my mm-hmm. effort to my mm-hmm. to the second question. Um, but I'll let you ask the first one. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so okay. Kelly, you can, the, the you can was, do it. Go for it. <laughs> the thing so, is that, so, um, we stayed in North Carolina. Daddy actually went up north and had to commute back and forth. Mm-hmm. But still, mm-hmm. you know, North Carolina and you're that's there. That's the South. Yeah, yeah. that's still, that's right. Yeah. You see down all yeah. that. But yeah, it's still that, that we have not, our communication with each other, those times when we talk and tell our stories, we just, like you said, we just didn't have time. We were too busy trying to survive. The thing is, I, I remember my, my mom and my grandmother told lots of stories, right? My grandma was from South Carolina, but eventually came up to Philadelphia. And I just learned this year, this, just, this really literally freaked me out. But my mom told me the story of herself as a little six-year, seven-year-old, four-year-old, not four, six or seven-year-old, um, going to the dentist, the school dentist. And it just... As you were speaking, Yara, I just realized, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, that's because they were poor because they they couldn't afford their own dentist for their kids. Like we don't think of black life in, res- I don't think of my family's life in comparison to white people or to rich people right. or to middle class. I just think of this as our lives and you don't, right. you don't label yourself as poor. But the reality is, is that people with means had their own dentist. They didn't need the school dentist. And for That's my right. mom, I just put the glasses, eyeglasses that come in the eye exam, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, all of it. Uh, even food. I mean, you know, even, you know, the school lunch program, which is wonderful and beautiful and we want it. But the reality is, is that in more affluent schools, they don't have that. They don't do that. But this is our life. This is, but here's the thing is that my mom, she was, she shared with me this year for the very first time that it was, it was in that dentist office that she was abused as a kid and he abused all the kids. He abused all yeah. Like that's, that's what we got. That's what we got. That's what poor people get. We had to pay the piper some kind of way, didn't we? Wow. Wow. Liz, I want to ask you a question with regard to this. And this actually, it's not one that I, it's, it's one that's coming up out of the conversation. Nowadays, honestly, I mean, I've lived in New York City. I've lived in Los Angeles. I've lived now in DC, New Jersey. New Jersey is a little easier to find, but it's hard to find poor white people. So where were you guys? <laughs> and and also, is this, is this your experience too? Is this the experience of white folk who are poor? So I, I grew up in Wisconsin in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, you know, in Wisconsin, I, I grew up in Milwaukee where it's a, a highly segregated city, mm-hmm. but there are large numbers of poor black and poor Latino, but also poor white people. And throughout the Midwest, that's the case. Throughout the yeah. South, that's the case. There are, are large sections of white people struggling in urban areas, in suburban areas, in exurban areas, in rural areas. 
67 million of the 140 million people who are poor and low income in this country are white. And so I think sometimes it's more in big cities. That isn't necessarily where concentration of poor white people are. That's a good way. Honestly, that's a really great observation. And it also, I'll tell you, people with means generally with, let's say, white folks with means live in cities and they're trying to actually take back the inner city. The inner city is no longer for black folk. It's for white folk now. It's a white folk with a lot of money to spend for their homes and their food. That's where you're going to find your whole foods and all of that. So it's really hard then to find people of European descent who are still struggling in cities. And that's basically where I've lived my entire life is in cities so or most of my mm-hmm. life. But what you describe about the South and the Midwest in those smaller cities or in those exurbans or um, ex-suburbs rather, or in rural areas, that I imagine is actually where you're going to have the highest concentration. And that's a whole different life, a whole different experience of life. And no experience of those systems, the systems and structures that normally are there in the cities. But basically what it means is that white poverty is hidden. It's hidden from us. Would you agree with that? I do. I do. Because when, when, when I think about poverty, I don't think white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know, I, uh, poor People Campaign really brought a lot of things to fruition for me, to, to reality for me, about how many white people are poor and in this boat with me. And then these people have mm-hmm. been passengers on this boat with me. I didn't even know they was on it. You know? How about that? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it's crazy. These conversations are so needed, not just the conversation on race. I think it's a more important conversation is on poverty and who's Mm -hmm. poor. You know, once Mm -hmm. we we realize that we're all on this overcrowded ship that's tipping, we we would be more united and things would change quicker. You know, Mm -hmm. right now for me, I was talking to someone doing a, a, a shorter interview a couple weeks back mm-hmm. and we was talking about the, all the, uh, well, not, yeah, maybe a couple weeks after George and, and all this stuff and, and the term, turmoil and the pain and the anguish and the fires and all this. I said, you, mm-hmm. do you feel it? Do you, you all feel this, this energy that, that's taking over, mm-hmm. not just America, but the world? I mm-hmm. said, that's what it feels like when the world's being turned upside right. Whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. When the world is being turned upside right. <laughs> I like this that. Is what it feels like. This is what it feels like. It's going to feel mm-hmm. like this is going to be painful. It's going to be changed, heart wrenching. It's going to be death. It's going to be all of this stuff. But it has to happen for mm-hmm. the world to be turned upside right. <laughs> See, the system is not broken. I tell people, we need to fix the system. No, we don't. This system no. that it was designed to do what it's supposed to do is doing it yep. immaculately. It is not broken. It yes. is working the way it was designed to work. We need to dismantle it and build a whole new system. We don't need to fix this one. Yeah. <laughs> this one does yeah. not need fixing. This one needs destroying. So to, for me. Yeah. Well, so like, well, Liz, I'm just, I want to go back because Liz, Liz, you actually got your start in dismantling this system. I don't know when the start point was. I intersected with your life while you were in seminary at Union and you were working with Willie Baptist with the Poverty Initiative. And I, and I just wondered, you know, when you were a student, I mean, you were dreaming of the Poor People's Campaign because we talked about it back then. This is like a decade ago. Did you ever think that it would actually happen? 
you know, and to this scale, I mean, what happened on Saturday and Sunday of last week? So I was raised in a family that has been dedicated to doing social justice and trying to upturn this system from a very, very young age. Mm. Um, and when I was 18, I met the National Union of the Homeless mm. and the National Welfare Rights Union. Mm-hmm. And those powerful leaders actually are who introduced me first to the the last campaign that Dr. King was working on. Um, uh. It was one that 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 had the leadership of welfare rights leaders and and many other poor folks that had been organizing actually before Dr. King <laughs> was mm-hmm. organizing around poverty, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and from my early introduction, I mean, this is you know, decades ago, I mean, I, I, I met folk when I was you know, about 25 years ago, I was introduced mm-hmm. to the Poor People's Campaign. And at the 35th anniversary of the Poor People's Campaign, we we did a poor and homeless families did a, a march from Marks, Mississippi, where one of the mm-hmm. caravans where the mule train had been to D.C. And we and at the 40th anniversary, we brought students from Union Seminary and, and other grassroots anti-poverty leaders mm-hmm. from uh, all to Memphis, to Marks, to, to other parts. And indeed, when we uh, formed the Cairo Center after 10 years of being the poverty initiative, the, the whole purpose was about reigniting a poor people's campaign, building a new poor people's mm. campaign for today. And, mm. you know, that's when I wow. got to meet Yara Allen and, oh. and uh, uh, as what that the, at the opening kind of launch of the Cairo Center where we were oh putting out that we need to build a poor people's campaign today. And so I think that because I was introduced to this powerful effort of poor people across racial and geographic lines to organize mm-hmm. to end poverty, mm-hmm. you know, so early on, I always knew that mm-hmm. it was needed and possible and that we were going to do something like this. Now, did I imagine, you know, the beautiful 46 coordinating committees across the country? Oh my um, God. The hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of organizations who are, who are trying to follow the leadership of those that are most impacted. Yeah. Did, I, did I imagine the, the beautiful songs and poems and art that wouldn't just decorate, but would be at the absolute core yeah. of this movement? Mm-hmm. Uh, did, I, did I imagine that this many years later, we would mm-hmm. have folks with raw sewage and living mm-hmm. in homeless encampments and actually in this pandemic and, and before it, so many more being thrust into the levels of, of poverty and misery? Mm-hmm. No, but did I know that there was the spirit of a powerful movement rising today? Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. what, what folks showed, you know, at that poor people's, a mass poor people's assembly in Moral March on Washington on June mm-hmm. 20th and June 21st, mm-hmm. you know, the largest gathering of poor and low income people and all people of conscience in U.S. history, you know, online. I mean, wow. it, it was, it was amazing, right? It and, was. It and, was amazing. and millions of people who, you know, many of us who have been kind of alone in our struggles got to hear and mm-hmm. got to see and got to feel that mm-hmm. there's a movement growing in this country in these times and we, and we need everybody in the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival. Mm. So Callie, I want to go back to you to that original question of when did you first understand that you were poor? And I wonder also if you could share with us, you know, what what your experience of poverty 
And Yara, I'm also going to ask you to, to chime in on this as well. What has it taught you? What's it taught you about our nation that you didn't understand or, or that most people don't understand? What I, you asked me what I learned about um, yeah. poverty that most people don't understand yeah. is that I, I really don't believe that folks don't understand poverty. Mm. I, I believe that folks choose how they see it. Oh, and, and some folks see it as an opportunity to pimp it now because there's a lot of money in poverty pimping. Wow. So, wow. so you see these folks ask for money, you know, like we elected the office of something, and my community, the poor community, just and the community never sees the money. Right. Oh. That's pimping it. That's poverty pimping. Wow. You know, um, the reject of people like doing this, telling their stories and stuff. You know, right. that people don't have a full detail. They just don't trust you with it. Huh. You know what I'm saying? Because they've been pimped so many times all through their life. Folks come in with all these different kind of grants, you know, um, yes. uh, weeding seeds, all this stuff. And they do the weeding. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. But they don't do it seeding. Uh-huh. So they come in and they take out the drug dealers and this and other. And that's, that's all well and good. But do we remember where, we are, where I'm living at, a drug dealer is providing food and housing for a family. That's exactly so all. Yes. It's an alternative economy because the real one ain't working for them. Yes. That's right. So when you take that, that drug dealer out of the community, and you don't put a seed there to help feed that family, then all you're doing is growing another drug dealer. Yeah. Because yeah. we don't eat now. You know, and so we're going we gonna to have some things. So the weed and seed is what it is, what it is. It's a, it's a poverty pivot thing to me because the folks that handle the money get more money than the folks that need it to me. That's just mm. Cali Greer. You know, mm-hmm. not, not who's doing good things, mm-hmm. more power to you. I lift you up. You're doing the right thing with the money. But a mm-hmm. lot of folks ain't. So it's a poverty pivot thing to me. So, so some people see it as a cause, you know? And mm-hmm. then they see us, then they use the other list to see us as a bunch of lazy folks. Uh. But we work at ourselves, I mean, from could to canker, mm-hmm. trying to make ends meet. And now that this is, this virus is here, you know, now we're essential. Ah! You know, so like I said, now, now we're essential. That killed me <laughs> when I realized what they were saying. They were saying that we're... <laughs> Oh my God! You know, it almost—I yeah. have to say—it it, kind of reminded me, Callie. It reminded me, Yara, Liz, of that black enslaved people, people of African descent in the South, were so essential uh-huh. to the work down there that they went to war us enslaved. That's how essential we were. Yeah. But it's not that our lives are essential; it's that our labor is essential. Yeah. Yeah. Labor, so, our cheap labor is essential to keep them cushy. Yes, to keep them and, and to, to, to they can continue to pimp the poverty system. Yes, therefore, wow. therefore, therefore, yes, continue to, to continue to do. I've had so much, too much time to sit here doing this virus. I'm not working. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even have a job now because of the virus. Mm-hmm. So I've had a lot of time to kind of think about things and look at things through this lens that I have because I'm living in this. And, and because how poverty and this system has affected my life directly, and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. and it's taught me to to continue to continue to think about it and not mm-hmm. to go along to get along. See, I've been going along to get along all my life. Mm-hmm. So, or anyway, so what I got to lose? So That's I'm for fighting. real. 
Mm. I'm fighting. I'm, I'm with the Poor People's Campaign. This is a national cause for, for your morals. I, I, what I got to lose, though, for real? I'm pouring anyway. So yeah, I'm fighting. Yeah, I'm marching. Yeah, I'm speaking out. I got everything to gain. I have nothing to lose but these chains. This yes, poverty. yes. You know, so why not? Why not? I mean, <laughs> because there's no scarcity. There's plenty to go around. There's greed. It's not scarcity. It's greed. Yes. There's plenty to go around in America. Like, listen, they throwing away some food like you ain't never seen before and, and deny you and deny folks to feed you on the street if you're homeless. Want to lock you up if you want to feed somebody. But they're throwing away. How, how am I essential to you when you won't even feed me? Oh. When you won't even house me? When I can't have clean water? When I can't go to the doctor? Then my husband going to the dentist. Wednesday, we got to try to find money. How are we going to pay the co-payment? We got insurance, but we can't even come for co-payment. So how are we going to get any dental help? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, so okay. Yes, you yes. Got, so you don't have the insurance. But if you can't pay the co-payment, you ain't getting no, no, no help. You know, no care. So, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy to me how folks are not fighting. How 144 million people are not a part of this poor people's campaign. This Mm. is about you. Personally, this is you. This is your children, your grandparents, your aunts, your grandsons, your daughter. This is you. You're poor. (laughs) If you're not, then you're one of the 1%. Or two percent, but how you not fighting? How you not? You already poor. What else is gonna put your take from you? <laughs> that ain't too much. Okay. Oh my god. <laughs> That's so, okay. I don't go on and on, but it's taught me. It's taught me that that I gotta fight. Yeah. It's taught me that I I've got to speak out. If, if, if I don't speak out, my husband says this all the time, and I didn't get it for a long time. He says. A lie will never confront the truth. Mm. He said, but a lie will go on to become the truth. But a lie will never confront the truth. Because when we confronted the Congress in Washington, D.C., they're supposed to ask us one question. Because the lie had been confronted, they already knew the truth. Mm-hmm. So instead of asking questions, they want to testify about them being in poverty. And, you know, that's a question he asked to another question. Anyway, so when the truth stands up like we are in front of a lie, the lie, wants, what it wants to do is, is tell another lie. And tell yes. another lie. And tell yes. another lie. But the truth still stands there. Say, no, mm-hmm. that's a lie. No, that, here's the numbers. Here are your facts. These are the facts you came out with. These yes. are the laws you made. This is what you said. That's mm-hmm. a lie. Mm-hmm. So it can't, it can't defeat the truth. So we stand up in truth. We, we're victorious. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod.
So I want to come back in and I want to actually bring in Yara. Um, Yara, you are a true artist. And you could be making music videos and performing for the Grammys. I am, I'm for real about that. I mean, I mean, I can see it. I see it. I am, I'm prophesying right now. (laughs) I'm serious. But I met you through your work with the Moral Monday movement, right? And now you're with the Poor People's Campaign. Can I just ask, how did that happen? How did that connection happen? What is your story? Well, first of all, Let me thank you for that heaping helping of generosity and that compliment. No, that is for real. But, <laughs> but it, and it's really strange because my sister sings. I always call her the real singer. Oh my she goodness. was the one who always wanted to go out and sing. And at an early age, there was a local quartet that came to town and heard my sister sing at a church. Um, she may have been about 11 and they wanted to take her on the road. Well, of course, you know, that was not going to happen. They assured my parents that, you know, there would be management and everything, and it just wasn't going to fly. And I was always the one who, you know, I never dreamed of singing outside of the front porch with my friends around. So I didn't see any of this coming at all. Mm. And thankfully, I do get the opportunity sometimes to sing around the house with my sister. But... I think to to talk about how it happened, I've I've always pretty much been involved with community activism, community theater. As I got older, I was working with Black Workers for Justice and singing with the Fruit of Labor Ensemble, which is the cultural arm arm of uh, Black Workers for Justice. Hmm. And between that, I, I was trying to find where I was really supposed to land. And so it was x-ray school for me and and then it was accounting and none of that fit and x-ray uh, school oh my god x-ray school I, wow. <laughs> did, did you see that at all right uh-uh. um and, and then and then it was it was cosmetology and I was just trying to find somewhere to land and the whole time in my heart I knew that the work that I was doing with activism was it I just didn't see it as being lucrative so I kind of yes. ran from it and when I finally realized you know what Forget the dollar signs. This is purpose. Mm. Um, So I have to take you to 2003. Okay. I was working at uh, Salaby Howard uh, School for the Arts and Education here in North Carolina in Wilson. Mm -hmm. And it was men's day. We walked into the auditorium and I heard all this buzz about a speaker. Uh, This is Reverend Barber. Mm. And he's Mm. speaking for men's day. And I said, okay, let's hear what he has to say. Mm. And I was completely mesmerized. Mm. I was done. When he left, I didn't know how to get in contact with him. I didn't know where he was from. Mm. But that message, his message was different. Mm -hmm. Um, Fast forward just a little bit. My sister and I started singing with the Fruit of Labor for the annual gatherings, the HK on J, the People's Assembly. Mm -hmm. And I would hear him speak. And and I still am saying, this is powerful. This is wonderful. My sister and I took my mom to his church. Well, I kind of tagged along with her. And uh, <laughs> at the end of this service, Reverend Barbara was standing at the door, and I walked past, and I said to him, shook his hand, and I said, I think I'm going to jail with you. And this was before Moral Monday started. Oh, my gosh. He walked out, and my mother looked back and asked, why did you say that to that man? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. 
It, isn't it? It was, it, I, it yes. was crazy. And so I said, I, I don't know why I said that, but I feel totally embarrassed now. And the only response he gave me was, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> and we left. And then in 2013, I was- 10 um, years later, I guess a the, decade later. Well, yeah, at, at around wow. 2000, I, I guess around 2007 or eight was when I, I made this statement to him. Oh, um, okay. So I was working at wow. Center for Community Change and coming out of that job, I just started attending the Moral Mondays. And it was one evening when I was on my way to my car and Reverend Barber asked Yara, by this time we had gotten acquainted and he asked, are you working? And I said, no, I'm not. And he says, well, we need somebody with the North Carolina NAACP. Are you interested? Oh, wow. You know, go down and check it out. And I went down the next day. I was hired, started working as a field secretary for Eastern North Carolina. Wow. and oh I guess the rest just kind of fell into place. Now, I knew I was not that kind of organizer because in my heart, I'm an artist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so all of, all of that structure stuff just kind of went out of the window. With <laughs> me. I, was, I, can't, I can't do that. And, and they recognized it. Here's the beauty of it. They recognized that. Huh. And instead of dismissing me, uh-huh. there, there was then this concentration on how can we build out the music in the movement? How can we make this a very essential part of the movement? And Liz is one of the people who made the statement that I always refer to. She said, music is not just decoration. It's Mm -hmm. a very essential part. We we build with the music in the planning. So yeah, that's that's kind of how all that came together. And here we are. I know it's a long story to get here, but no, 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 Yara. Oh my God. Like that, that honestly, what it feels, it just, you can see how God was, God was sewing you into the movement, you know, like like that needle was going a little further, a little further into the, into the fabric and kind of weaving its way around till finally, you are where you're supposed to be. You know what I mean? It's like, wow. Right. And it feels, I know that this is, this is, where I'm supposed to be. I am, I'm comfortable with it. I'm, I'm satisfied, you know, with the fit is, is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Whereas all before I was bouncing around, no, this is not it. Throw that out. No, this is not it. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so who is your inspiration? Who, in terms of, you know, music, theomusicology, like who, who is your inspiration? And what does that mean? Also break that down for our, our listeners. Theomusicology. I've never heard that before you. <laughs> <laughs> so John Michael Spencer wrote a book about theomusicology. Oh. And from the scholarly standpoint, he delved into it using anthropology and psychology and all of that. So basically what he was saying was we're going to examine sacred music. But the way that we're going to do it is by looking at history, looking at the history of certain people, using all the information around groups of people Mm -hmm. to assess the music and and how the music came through the years and how, you know, how you apply that music. So that's the short of it. It takes like two two books, I guess, to really get through (laughs) all of what John Michael Spencer uh, lays out. But Mm -hmm. So, theomusicology in a moral movement uses 
some of those same principles in theory and practice. And so mm-hmm. what we do is we, first of all, using the theo part of the study of music, we find the good message in music. Mm-hmm. We find how we can take the sacred, the secular, and even looking at the profane, which is how John Michael Spencer viewed it through the lens of the sacred, the secular, and the profane. Because mm-hmm. you take music like Tupac's music. There's mm-hmm. a group of people who, for whom that music resonates. Yes. Um, there's a part of that music that society would call very profane. But look at the godly message in that movement and that music because there's a strong message in there. Yeah. Tupac was trying to say something and he was doing what Nina Simone called. And by the way, that is my person. When, when Nina says mm. it is the job of an artist to interpret the times. And that was all that Tupac was doing. He was ah. interpreting the times that he was in. Yes. And so as we travel the country, we consider where we are. We consider uh-huh. what people have gone through. We consider the work that's been done there, the kind of music that resonates with the people there, mm-hmm. and what it is that we can bring in the music to help inspire the people and the work. Mm-hmm. And it becomes that that feel musicology. And then how we how do we apply that? You know, how do we get music so that we get the most out of of the music that we offer or that comes up um, as an offering. Got it. So yeah, my person is Nina Simone. Hmm. Um, uh-huh. mm-hmm. Yes. For yes. so many reasons, for so many reasons. Wow. And that early on in her life, she was firm in her truth. Hmm. As even as a young girl who refused yep. to play until her parents were seated in a different place, you know, because they couldn't sit up front and Nina would not touch the piano until they relaxed that rule. Wow. And even throughout her life, with all of her troubles, with all of, of everything she went through, she was strong in her truth and that she used her voice to interpret the times. Yeah, so that's my person. So Liz, what was the impact of the mass assembly in the end? Like what, what happened and what have you guys been able to discern the impact of Yara's singing and the testimonies of the impacted people and the testimonies of people who are watching this thing actually happen? What did y'all do? <laughs> what, how is the world different because of the mass assembly? I mean, what we know is that millions of people, even just on Facebook alone, not not even counting the TV and radio networks that were streaming it, um, mm. you know, logged in and heard stories much like the stories that they're experiencing in their own communities, in their own families, and that people also got to hear and take action together around a policy platform and a, a set of demands that is coming out of, of grassroots communities. And so mm. I think we've talked about in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, the need to shift the narrative mm-hmm. um, to get this nation talking and acting around the real emergencies of systemic racism and poverty, ecological devastation, militarism and the war economy and this false, distorted moral narrative. Can I just say real quickly, um, real quick, is that one of the things that is so distinctive about your work is that it is, it is first of all, fusion in that you are very multi-ethnic. It's a, it is an incredibly multi-ethnic endeavor, but at the same time, it's fusion as in it's not allowing 
the issues to be siloed. That was the thing that really struck me watching it is that y'all hit every base. Like there was nothing, no rock left unturned. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's, you know, uh, uh, Dr. King said that, that when it comes to poverty and racism and militarism, that you can't get rid of any of them without getting Mm. rid of all of them. Right. Mm. And I think that's what we're finding. And that's what we're seeing that the, that the connection between those who are in power um, and passing policies and upholding a structure that denies people their right to vote uh, using racist voter suppression mm-hmm. is the same system and the same politicians and people and structure that is denying living wages, that is mm-hmm. suppressing health care, that is allowing uh-huh. for great and deep poverty to grow, that is making sure that we don't protect the environment mm-hmm. and is sending our poor brothers and sisters off to fight in rich people's wars, right? And so what we've seen is that these are interlocking injustices and that we have to take them all on. Um, and to be able to do so effectively, what we need is to build power, power mm. amongst the 140 million people who are poor and low income. And so what we were able to do on Saturday is begin to shift that narrative and to surely build our power. And we send more than 300,000 letters with our policy platform to governors wow. and to, to representatives. We had tens of thousands of people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people signing up and, and joining the campaign. And we're just getting started. Right. We're still just three years old, two years old. And so, you know, we need a, a powerful and uh, broad uh, fusion movement, like you said. And, mm-hmm. and surely one is growing and, and Saturday and Sunday and this weekend were important steps along the way. So Callie, what is the most valuable way that somebody who isn't poor can partner with you and the struggle against poverty? I thought about that and I said to agree to live in poverty for a week. Oh. Agree uh, to put aside everything, all of your, mm-hmm. all of your means and live on the means that, that we live on for a week. Mm-hmm. To really actually put on those shoes that you, you know, put on my shoes and walk on those shoes for mm. a week. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then come back and let's have this conversation about poverty. Yeah. But until until you've experienced it, mm-hmm. really experienced it, then you can't talk to me about it, you know? I know that education is essential. I have a different, as I listen to you all articulate your stories and I'm sitting here and I'm listening, you know, I'm not, I don't have that kind of articulation for my story, but my story is, is, is articulate because it's my story. Oh, and yeah. I tell it from my, from, yeah, from my, from my perspective. So mm-hmm. I, I, I just really don't think there's any other way for somebody to, to talk to me about poverty. Like people, when, when we lost Venus, I had some people walk up to me when we lost Mercury and say, I, I know how you feel, oh. you know, or, and, this is, and I'm like, uh-uh. you lost a child too, mm-hmm. you know, so, it's just, it's so that we need to talk, you know, because I need to know how you Process. weather this, yeah. this, this storm so that I can have some pointers on what to do. Mm-hmm. So, no, they had lost a child, so they could, they were trying to imagine how I feel, right? Or try to make them, but for you to say to me that you know how I feel in poverty when you can't feed your child or whatever, and somebody that that's got food to throw away says they know how you feel. No, you don't. Mm-mm. So to, to actually become poor yourself, and then even in that, you still they're still going to be able to go back to right, to, uh, right. 
checks that they have, but at least they would have experienced it. I think that's profound what you what you're saying because you're saying because I asked you what's the most valuable way somebody who isn't poor can partner, and you did not say give us anything. You said divest yourself <laughs> of what you have. Like that's that's kind of deep. That's really deep, actually. It's a it's a it's a higher call. It's much easier to send a check, even though hey, it is. We won't we won't disparage checks. <laughs> A check is a band-aid to me. You know, it helps money that the money they have to call things, okay. But to be able for the root of the root cause of it, of yeah. the poverty, it's it, it actually greed. <sighs> Not wanting to give away give up anything. Because you're afraid that you'll live like I've been living all my life or for whatever reason. Mm. All the horror stories that the fear mongering and all of that stuff. Yeah, send the check. Send the check to the poor people's cafe and that's your call. Yes. Please send the check. Yeah, yes. send the check because we need it. But also, send yourself. Show up. Use your voice. Yes. Use your influence. Women have the ear of, of, of all powerful men, black or white, or any other cultural race. Women have that the ear to them. You have to have a mother instinct to be able to relate, even relate to losing a child. Mm. The horror of it. We've lost two. The horror of it. And how, you know, like when I testified in Congress, I felt naked. Because most of the white men that were there were just there to be counted. Was just there to be counted. They didn't ask me one question. It was the women of color that were empathizing and sympathizing and and wanted to know more. They just showed up and told and they testified. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they were saying, and how they pulled themselves by the bootstraps. Some folks ain't got feet, man. Yes. Uh, you know, you said that. So, yes. um, so, yeah, anyway. But to be, to, but to just try to, it's kind of live, I said for a week because they wouldn't last a month. <laughs> 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 I'm sure of that. We, you know, we wouldn't want to have that on our conscious, but to come and live a week, mm-hmm. you know, and actually live it. But I have the thought of it, this is over in a week, and I'll go back to what, I, what I'm used to. But I have the thought of that in a week, they'll go back to their luxurious life or whatever they have there, all the benefits they have. Mm-hmm. And because once they leave, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't go back to that. They get a chance to go back to that. So that, yeah. that was the, the initial thought of this. They would leave level weak in poverty. What gives you hope in the midst of this? What gives you hope? Um, this? Mm-hmm. This conversation, poor people's campaigns give me hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, they give people like myself a voice, and to be able to to share and give yeah. some, and give you a little insight into what it's like to live this way, to know that we live in a nation that will not only will not only let you die, but will sit idly by and watch you slowly die. Yeah, that's when you live in a, a nation that says that you it's too expensive for you to live. You cost too much for you to get insurance. It'll, it'll send us into bankruptcy. When then a virus hits and you can have all the insurance you want, they don't even know what it is. Hmm. So what's your health care? You know what I'm saying? The health care insurance that you're afforded, it's not really, because they don't even know what to do with it. They're telling you what to, how to minimize or contain it, but get rid of it? No. So now we are all in need of some kind of health care. So this gives me hope. I, I was giving a voice during the um, Moral Mondays and to be able to share about the loss and living in poverty. 
So yeah. I've held tight to it. I don't have all the means to be able to access every meeting or be at every march or, mm-hmm. or be a part of everything, but they know that my heart is in it. Whenever they call on me, if I'm, if I'm able, I'm, I'm there. Mm-hmm. I do everything I can to be mm-hmm. available. Even when I was working, I'd I not go to work or whatever, because this is so important. This gives me hope. And my children and grandchildren get to see me fighting. And they know that they got to fight. Callie, I heard you speak on the National Mall. Not, I wasn't present, but I was present on YouTube. <laughs> but I watched, I watched your talk, your testimony that you gave on the lawn in front of, in front of the, the Senate offices before you guys went in, I believe, um, for the hearings. And you talked about, you talked about the loss. You talked about yeah. losing your daughters, your children, mm. and you wailed, you wailed, you wailed in a way yeah. I have not heard. And I'll tell you what, all the words that came before it, actually your words were beautiful and powerful, but none of them had the power of your scream. Because I think it was in that scream, it was in your wailing that I actually got yeah. it. I got, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah, but this June Juneteenth, we, I did, went to Thomasville for a whaling. We asked me to come down and do a piece about whaling women, and mm. I shared about Rachel and her children. I did it before, and and, and the night before, it did a, a two deaths, and the mothers were there, and we whaled. Mm. There was a breaking. Mm. Until you break, the issues can't flow. That's it. That's, it. Just, That's what I'm it was. You, yes. it breaks you. It breaks you to hear a mother wailing for her children that are no more. I'm not to cry. I'm sorry, y'all. But it's okay. It's okay. To hear that because I, when I when I watch that, I, I, I'm outside of myself, and I and I hurt for myself. Yes. I hurt for that woman. Yes. I break for that woman, mm-hmm. and I wail with that woman. And and until you break, you you cannot. You cannot. You have to break. Yeah. There has to be a breaking. There yeah, has to be a breaking okay. because. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. people are being broken. Like that's when you, when you, yeah. that's when I realized, oh my God, like the system itself, the structure is breaking people. Yeah. Breaking. Would somebody else like to jump in? Yeah, that was, that was, that was just the, that was the amen corner. Oh. That was, <laughs> that was the amen corner. So, okay. So, so Liz, I need to ask, how can people get involved? How can people say I'm in? So, I mean, I, I mean, I, I want us to take seriously Callie's call. If people want to join the Poor People's Campaign, you can go to poorpeoplescampaign.org and you can text the word MORAL, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975. Um, mm-hmm. You'll be added to our list. The folks in your coordinating committee in your state can reach out to you or you can reach out to them. But we surely need everybody in this movement and in this mm-hmm. campaign. And so hoping that people, you know, if you're not already involved, that you you join up and um, do you have to be poor to actually be involved? No, I mean, we have people from all walks of life. Our coordinating committees are, are headed mm-hmm. up by someone who is impacted, uh, mm-hmm. someone who is a leader in the faith community and someone who's an activist or an organizer or advocate. In fact, we, we think it's really important that while those that are most impacted are in leadership positions, are, are helping to determine the policies that we, we need to change, are helping to determine the strategy, that we need uh, this movement to be uh, made up of people from all walks of life. Um, okay. And so that's why we have you know hundreds of, of organizations that are a part of it. 
more than 20 national faith bodies. So we, we need everybody. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's what, what history says is that Mm -hmm. when those that are most impacted band together with people from all walks of life to build a a movement from below, a fusion movement, a moral fusion movement, Mm -hmm. that's when um, society changes. And so we need absolutely everybody in this work. Do you have a sense of what's next? I mean, where do, where does the Poor People's Campaign go from 2.5 million people watching on online? Like that's like that's a lot. So what what and, and 300 more than 300,000 letters sent into governors and senators and and House members around the country. What next? I mean, so we you know have always said that we need to shift this narrative and we need to build this power. You know, this is an election season. We'll be coming out later this summer. With mm-hmm. a, a study that we've put together with Columbia University that says mm-hmm. that when poor and low-income people vote together across race, across geography, around an agenda like the agenda that we just put out on Saturday, mm-hmm. this moral justice jubilee policy platform, mm-hmm. that that can significantly change the entire political calculus of this nation. And mm-hmm. so we'll be working on voter protection and voter mobilization, but also just you know, trying to to build power around this agenda. I mean, we have a policy platform that says that, you know, we can have, we found the money, uh, we're now building the political wheel to be able to enact universal single-payer health care and, that's really and true. education that's free and good and not segregated, you know, mm-hmm. from the elementary years all the way through college and university. That, that includes uh, shifting funds from our military. 53 cents of every discretionary dollar in this country goes to the military and less than 15 for education and health care and anti-poverty programs combined. And so, you know, we need to we need to end this war economy and and invest in in living wages and adequate income and and so many different programs. And so I encourage folks to also check out that policy platform and to get involved as we build power to be able to make it so because um, mm-hmm. that's what we're doing. And Yara, how can artists contribute to the Poor People's Campaign? Well, pretty much in the same ways that, that uh, Liz and Callie have already mm. uh, stated. Mm-hmm. But also, um, we're asking artists to empty their tool sheds, to pull out every gift, to dust <sighs> off those gifts, those songs, the poetry, the visual arts, the what, whatever art form that they work in, to bring that to the arc. We're asking artists all over the country, all over the world, to help weight the arc with the arts. If you notice, I don't, I don't know if you notice, but Letty sang with us with the Moral Voices Choir. And that choir was made up of people from more than 27 states. Wow. And these are artists from um, the hills of Kentucky, from uh, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, just all over. Uh And everybody came together to lift that song, Hold On Just a Little While Longer. And Mm -hmm. Letty agreed to to join us, as did uh, the daughter of Dick Gregory, Ayanna Gregory. Mm. So what we're saying is that it does not matter. You know, we're asking you if you have a platform to please use it to help us change the narrative. If you're, like I said, in the hills of Kentucky, sing those songs lift them, bring them to the campaign. We'll all sing them together as long as we get the message out. And so the arts have been amazing 
at sending messages. You know, I mean, we have little children who know the songs of the campaign. And so, and we know the power of music. We know the power of visual arts. Mm-hmm. Um, we're coming up now with a project. We're going to ask all artists to keep an eye on the website. We're going to be building out the website so that um, it's able to embrace very uh, quite a few art forms, from spoken word to dance. We're asking everybody, just empty, empty the tool shed and, and bring what you have. I literally... I got chills with that. When you said empty the tool shed, now is the time. I got chills. And you're going to be hearing from me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Send us Wonderful. A word or maybe even a play that I've written yeah. here or there. Because that's, those are, you said dust it off. I was like, oh, suck it, suck it now. That's it. <laughs> this is like, oh, this I can hardly oh. wait. So, but okay, so I, I heard, I heard that you wrote somebody's hurting my brother for the poor people's campaign. Is that right? Well, actually, it it was born during the time that we I was with the North Carolina NAACP, oh. but it took on something extra. I will say that it mm. took on something extra mm. um, in the hands of the the poor people's campaign. But it was written during a town hall meeting in Stokes County, North Carolina. And the residents there were fighting Duke Energy for the coal ash, about the coal ash that was being dumped in their communities. And and there were all kinds of health side effects from from the coal ash. Uh And we were listening in on that town hall meeting and um, Reverend Barbara turned and asked if I would close out the meeting with a song. And I had the... The songs that we normally use in rallies, that that was what was on my mind. Hmm. And I knew that there had to be something different because we were at that point, Callie, of wailing hmm. for, for people yeah. who oh were, whose limbs were withering. Hmm. Young people, um, uh, young boys, 14 years old, in remission hmm. from the cancer that Jesus. was caused by the coal ash. And so as I walked to the mic, I had nothing. And I said, well, let's, let's see wow. what happens. And wow. that song came out, maybe just a line of it I had before I walked up. And I was like, I don't know what's going on here, but we're going to give in to the spirit of the moment and see what happens. And that happened. And so... Can you um, sing it? Can you sing it for us? Yeah. Oh um, okay. And, and I want to say that as we moved about the country with the Poor People's Campaign, seeing what we saw helped to build that song as well. Uh, And some of the verses that have come, that have been attributed, came from, came from the pain that we've seen. The poisoning of water. Yeah. The denial of healthcare, things that we've been seeing all along, but that really became like in your face. Yeah. I couldn't deny it. We're traveling, we're there, we're sitting and talking with people who are experiencing this every day. And so it seems like as we travel, we came away with another verse and another verse and another verse. I want to, let's, okay. clo- let's close okay. in song. How about, <laughs> All right. Yeah, All right. We'll let's do, do it. So um, this is a call and response. And um, the call is, Somebody's hurting my brother and it's gone on. And the response is far too long. Yes, it's gone on. A response far too long. It's gone on. Response far too long. 
somebody's hurting my brother and it's gone on far too long and we won't be silent anymore. It's done all together. And I want to say, because we've been asked about some of the lyrics and I invite people that it, if there is a specific line that you want to add mm-hmm. that, that speaks to your concern, then by all means, put it in and sing away, right? Amen. <laughs> so, and tweet it too. Tweet it so that maybe you know, tweet it. We, could, right. we could actually add, it can be added to the song. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's good. Okay. Um, it's still morning, so here we go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. Oh, somebody's hurting my brother, and it's gone on far too long. Yes, it's gone on far too long. I tell you, it's gone on far too long. Oh, somebody's hurting my brother, and it's gone on for so long and we won't be silent anymore did you know somebody's hurting our families and it's gone on for too long yes it's gone on for too long I tell you it's gone on for too long Somebody's hurting our families, and it's gone on for too long, and we won't be silent anymore. Have you heard somebody's poisoning the water, and it's gone on for too long? Yes, it's gone on for too long. It's gone on for long. Somebody's poisoning the water, and it's gone on for too long. And we won't be silent anymore. Yeah, somebody wants to build that wall, y'all. And it's gone on for long. It's gone on Yeah, it's gone on for too long. Somebody wants to build that wall, y'all. And it's gone on for too long. And we won't be silent anymore. And we won't be silent anymore. Oh, we won't be silent anymore. Amen. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., and actually wherever our guests are in the world in this COVID crisis. 
This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work on our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates, and we promise we really won't. We will not fill your inbox. (laughs) We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.